0: The North American mineral rushes of the 19th century saw hundreds of thousands flock to mountains and mines across the continent in search of fame and fortune, from panning for gold to working long, dangerous shifts down poorly run mines. Entire industries exploded overnight, sucking in workers from around the world. During the San Juan silver rush of the 1870s, one of these workers was a young man named Alfred Packer, an epileptic, military cast-off who drifted across America looking for his passport to a new life. He had lived a reasonably anonymous existence until one fateful expedition saw him wind up almost starving to death, only surviving by eating his fellow party members, a surprisingly common occurrence in the Old West. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 14 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben and it's good to be back after the summer break. To say it's a break is probably a bit of a stretch because I've been doing an awful lot of work anyway um, for the podcast. But it's been great fun. So yeah, a lot of really exciting news. I'll I'll go into most of that in the second half of this podcast. But I do want to just say one thing um, because it's just really exciting and I've been working on this for months uh, or what feels like months and months and months but perhaps it's been just a couple of months i'm not sure the dark histories books are now available which is absolutely mad and i'm super excited and i'll go more into it in the second half like i say but dark histories books are now available to buy on kindle and paperback in from amazon from wherever you are in the world they're available globally which is super exciting but i'll go into much more about that in the second half for now Let's just jump into this week's episode, which is... The Many Confessions of Alfred Packer In 1848, James Marshall, a carpenter turned farmer, struck gold in California during the construction of a sawmill along the American River near the small town of Coloma, 175 miles northeast of San Francisco, nestled in the Sierra Nevada foothills. It was the touch paper that would signal the start of what would eventually become one of the greatest migrations in American history, the California Gold Rush. In one year, between 1848 and 1849, the non-native population of California grew from less than 1,000 to just over 100,000, and by the end of the rush, it was over three times that. Entire towns would spring up from nowhere, or would become evacuated and left for dead, as their populations moved on to more adventurous climes. The whole country is now moving on the mines. Monterey, San Francisco, Sonoma, San Jose and Santa Cruz are emptied of their male population. A stranger coming here would suppose he had arrived amongst a race of women. The amount of money that the gold rush introduced into the American economy was so great that it acted as a lightning shot to reinvigorate an economy that in previous years been struggling by the mid 1850s more than 750,000 pounds of gold would be extracted from the California mountains with a total net worth of over 2 billion dollars people from across north america as well as from abroad flocked to the area accelerating its ascension to statehood at the same time the impact on the native population was essentially genocidal and the population numbers of natives plummeted as quickly as the non-native population grew. Those that weren't drawn by the gold directly sought a second, more entrepreneurial route by opening saloons, hotels, and general goods stores as small Mayan towns were quickly established and grown overnight. For people with carts and livestock, freight services were established to cart tools and equipment between the outposts. Services, shops, saloons, and hotels were quickly erected. Ironically, for most choosing this path, the profits were far greater than for the majority of prospectors who sought their riches in gold. The promise of wealth and fortune was a tempting dream for many, but none more so than the lost and the downtrodden. It was a chance for the misfits to strike it rich in a land that was barely policed due to the location of many of the camps. And gain an even footing with the wealthiest in the nation. As such, many of the miners and prospectors that flocked into the area were of questionable character. Some came to seek money in the mines, whilst others simply came to con those that were lucky enough to strike it rich at their newfound wealth. With camps so far out of the reach of the law and a demographic of those not necessarily aligned with stellar moral choices, crime and violence was common as drinking and gambling fueled an edgy population. In literature, the camps, hamlets, and small fledgling towns were all gold dust and gun smoke and served as the birthplace of much of the myth that persists today of the old American West. By the mid-1850s, the rush had moved on. What had started with simple tools had turned into a fully-fledged industrial mining industry and the promise of riches for the unestablished dwindled sharply. Prior to the California Gold Rush, there'd already been a few smaller less significant rushes, and it was a trend that would continue long after the spark of excitement had departed from California. second half of the 19th century saw dozens of gold and silver rushes take place across the country, though none would be quite as significant on a social scale. They were often just as lucrative for those lucky enough to strike it rich, and the industrial businesses that often funded the prospectors, who kicked off many events. Following the rushes, a certain breed of person drifted across the country, chasing the dream of what they might find in the next mountain, or in the next mine. An entire industry grew up around it, as men and women hopped from one mining job to another, state to state, chasing the rumours and the saloon talk. Like so many that had flocked into California in the early 1850s, These drifters were thrill-seekers, frontiersmen, outlaws, gamblers, con artists, thieves, cast-offs, and misfits. One such man was Alfred Packer, a man who fit many of these roles, but would eventually become known for far worse. Born in 1842 in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, Alfred Packer was one of eight children born to James and Esther Packer. Shortly after Alfred's birth, the family relocated to La Grange, Indiana, where James worked as a cabinetmaker. Very little else is known about the Packer family during Alfred's upbringing, aside from the fact that his father was an active member of the local Methodist Episcopal Society, probably along with most of the other locals. During his early teens, Alfred, who was still illiterate, was apprenticed to a leather worker and shoemaker. It was around about this same time that he also began showing symptoms of epilepsy, where he began suffering from frequent, debilitating fits. Despite this condition, he still enlisted to fight in the Civil War after its outbreak in 1861, when he was 19 years old, joining the 16th Regiment of the US Infantry in Winona, Minnesota. Shortly after signing up, He carried out the standard six-month stint in Camp Thomas in Columbus, Ohio, where new recruits were trained before shipping out to Camp Douglas in Chicago, Illinois. The camp was a pretty rough station for a new recruit. Built a few hundred yards from the shores of Lake Michigan, and named after the property owner who supplied the land for it to be built upon, it was a permanent prisoner of war camp for Confederate soldiers, and conditions were poor at best, with the mortality rate of the prisoners standing around one in seven. The site was chosen due to its convenience, placing the prison nearby to a railroad for inbound transport. However, the harsh weather conditions of the region did nothing to help alleviate what was already an area with no sewer and generally poor sanitation, standing it with no chance to serve what quickly became an overcrowded swamp-like barracks. Diarrhea, bronchitis, measles, mumps and smallpox tore through the camp and by the end of the civil war, the outpost had claimed more lives from the Confederacy than any battlefield. Fortunately for Packer, his stint at Camp Douglas was not to last overly long. By Christmas of 1862, he was given early discharge on the grounds of disability, citing his frequent seizures as making him unfit to serve. Undeterred, Packer re-enlisted with L Company of the 8th Regiment in the Iowa Cavalry. With this group, He was quickly transferred to Tennessee, where he played his part during the Battle of Nashville. The fighting was fierce, large-scale, and drove on for two days straight, with the ultimate result falling on the side of the Union after the retreat of the Confederate armies. Shortly after the fighting, Packer was docked $2.50 of his wages for plundering the citizens of Nashville, a common pastime that followed most victories throughout the Civil War. Despite plunder and pillaging, being officially barred. The Battle of Nashville was the beginning and end of the conflict for Packer, who, following the end of the fighting, was once again discharged on grounds of disability. Before his discharge, he'd spent 60 days in a medical bed. His bouts of fits were so bad at the time that his discharge papers stated he was suffering with fits as often as two and three times every 48 hours. After his second discharge, Alfred Packer took to drifting through the Midwest, working as a trapper, hunter, occasional leather worker and wilderness guide until he wound up in the West in the state of Colorado, like so many others before him, prospecting for gold and working as a miner. It wasn't long before Packer was introduced to the dangers of the profession when he wound up losing two of his fingers on his left hand following a mining accident and suffered several bouts of lead poisoning. By 1873, He'd moved to a tiny mining town named Sandy, 12 miles to the south of Salt Lake City in Utah, where he worked as a smelter. By the early 1870s, the California gold rush of the mid-19th century had well and truly waned, followed by various gold and silver rushes blowing up and bursting across America in the following decades. San Juan mountain range in the southwestern corner of Colorado had been prospected for gold and silver as early as the 1760s when Spanish explorers from Santa Fe made up expeditions following the numerous riverbanks that snaked through the region. It wasn't until 1848, however, that any precious metals were discovered in any abundance, and even then they were seemingly not followed up by any large scale Mayan activity or prospecting excitement possibly due to being overshadowed by the drive west into California. It was in 1860 when a party led by Captain Charles Baker, a frontiersman and veteran of several previous gold rushes, financed by S.B. Kellogg & Co. drove headlong into an expedition along the San Juan River, uncovering silver and gold deposits in the waters that led to the first, relatively understated, rush to the area by prospectors and panhandlers. The Civil War had put a premature end to much of the fledgling activity in the region, and it wasn't until after the war that things once more picked up. By the 1870s, floods of people were beginning to pour into the San Juan Mountains. Despite the poor weather towards the end of the summer in 1872, thousands came to Colorado in search of a future paved in riches, fighting against not only the freezing temperatures, but also the law. Officially speaking, The winter months in the San Juans were off-limits since the establishment of the Kit Carson Treaty in 1868 between the United States government and the native Ute Indians who had lived in the area for centuries. Before the treaty, the increased traffic within a broad area of Colorado previously deemed unsuitable for Anglo-American settlement, but now, suspected to be rich in mineral deposits, had seen the boundaries of an earlier Friendship Treaty between white miners and the Ute Indians Severely strained in efforts to broker peace and secure future access to the mineral-rich mountains, the 1868 treaty saw a large portion of the Ute's ancestral land handed over to the United States government in exchange for 15 million acres of undisturbed hunting grounds and a $30,000 per year allowance in clothing, blankets, and farming equipment, along with $30,000 per year in beef, mutton, wheat, flour, beans, and potatoes. Ute children were also expected to attend white schools as part of the bargain. With the rush to find silver, however, the treaty was thrown into immediate jeopardy as prospectors and miners, buoyed with their divine right to ownership, flocked onto the reservation. The Utes compromised, allowing access to the land during the summer months with no permanent homes or structures allowed to be built. The compromise was a sincere effort, but eventually, in 1873, A more robust deal was brokered that saw the Utes giving up another 4 million acres of silver-rich lands for an additional $25,000 a year in equipment and livestock. It was a timely deal, as the spring of 1873 had seen miners' camps spring up across the Colorado mountain ranges before the snow had even melted. The southwest corner of Colorado that included the San Juan mountain range was a difficult landscape for the miners, Described as a cold, arid and intensely vertical world, it was home to freezing temperatures throughout the year, sharp, snow-capped grey peaks that pierced the skyline, dense forests and vast swathes of wilderness. Throughout this unforgiving landscape, small ramshackle settlements popped up over mining holes, many of which were far off the beaten track, unmapped and in complete isolation. The silver rush into the area had been hampered by poor access through treacherous mountain trails, with all supplies having to be freighted in on the back of pack animals. Where there is the promise of riches, however, there will always be adventurous, or desperate, men and women who are prepared to brace the elements in hopes of striking their fortune. After the fallout of the Civil War, the types of people who emigrated into the harsh environments were more often than not the uneducated, the unemployed and the left behind, serial criminals and stargazing fortune hunters. It seems only natural that Alfred Packer, an uneducated misfit with a debilitating case of epilepsy, cast aside by the Civil War and recovering from a further bout of lead poisoning, would wind up amongst the rabble flocking towards the San Juans in the autumn of 1873, ready to find his fortune. After being established in the area for several months, Alfred Packer met with Bob McGrew and George Tracy in Bingham Canyon, southwest of Salt Lake City, in October of 1873. McGrew and Tracy had been operating a freight hauling business, utilizing their two carts and eight horses to lunk mining equipment from camp to camp, but had found it a gruelling job, inconsistent, and poorly paid. Tired of the work and looking for any place that showed a chance to make some money. The pair had been talking of putting together a party to head towards the San Juan Mountains and seek their fortune, and had been putting out feelers, offering a place in their group for a down payment of $50. A grub stake, it was called, that would ensure the payee a share of profits in exchange for helping to finance the expedition. Packer, keen to join the outfit, but too poor to pay his grub stake, bartered with McGrew, offering to work his passage as a wilderness guide, convincing McGrew that due to his living and working in Colorado in the previous years, he knew the area well. McGrew had seen Packer around the camp, and he knew of his exploits debating the local Mormons on theological matters, and had been reasonably impressed by the man. Convinced by both Packer's apparent intelligence and obvious athleticism, he agreed for him to come on as guide and horse handler in exchange for covering his $50 grub steak personally. The party spent the next week stopping up on provisions in Salt Lake City and eventually grew to a group of 19 strong. Along with Paco, McGrew and Tracy, there were 16-year-old George Noon from San Francisco, Frank Miller, a German butcher, Cooper, a man from Scotland, George Driver and James Humphrey, both from Philadelphia, Jean Cabazon a Frenchman who was originally known within the camp as Frenchie, Mike Burke, the brothers Isaac and Tom Walker, Shannon Wilson-Bell from Michigan, Italian Tom, who one assumes was Italian, James Montgomery, James McIntosh, and on the other end of the age spectrum from George Noon, was Israel Swan, the oldest member of the group who was in his 60s. To call it an eclectic mob would be an understatement a microcosm of melting pot America, they got ready to hit the road and head south on the dangerous path into the San Juan Mountains. The group set out on the 1st of November, 1873, stocked to take on the 400-mile journey that Packer had insisted would take them around 20 days. Shortly after leaving Bingham Canyon, they picked up two more members on the road, Preston Nutter, who joined the party as it passed through Provo, south of Salt Lake City, and Oliver D. Lusenheiser in Salina, a former sheriff of Montana. At first, they followed the old Spanish trail south towards the Colorado border, and Packer was fulfilling his role as guide admirably. But after they crossed the Grand River, it quickly became apparent to the entire group that Packer had been overstating his knowledge as a guide to the area. In fact, they soon found out that Packer had absolutely no clue as to where they were at all. Making matters worse, Packer was already suffering from bad feeling in the group after rumours of his incarceration after frequenting prostitutes began to spread. Preston Nutter in particular took a dim view of him, calling him a man without character. The group quickly turned against him, labelling him as a petty thief and accusing him of hogging all the rations, which were already running low. McGrew was the only member of the group to stand behind Packer He shared his wagon with Packer at night and felt sorry for him after assisting him through several fits. During one fit early on in the journey, Packer had fallen into the fire and McGrew was the only member of the group who even tried to help him. Packer's epilepsy drew the ire of some of the other members who saw it as an inconvenience and they told McGrew that, it being his choice to accept Packer on the trip, it fell to him to look after him too. Whether or not Packer was ashamed, or frightened of his epilepsy, or maybe after being thrown out of the army twice already, he just feared abandonment, or for some other reason entirely, Packer told McGrew, after his first fit on the road, that it was the first time in his life that he had suffered such an attack. After that, he had fits almost daily throughout the journey. He had them repeatedly. In the daytime, I could tell when they were coming on, as he would glare into the fire with an insane stare from which nothing could attract him. At such times, I'd catch him, lay him down, and hold him until he came out of the fit. Due to the fitting, the spreading rumors, and the growing lack of faith in his abilities as a guide, Packer spent most of his time throughout the journey on the edges of the group, doing most things alone and not mixing with anyone. In fairness to the rest of the group, Packer wasn't exactly helping his situation by casually asking the other members when he did speak to them, what their financial situation was. Even if he had been asking in a way of conversation, it was probably not the best topic for a man most of the group regarded as a thief. As they moved further and further from Salt Lake City, the terrain became increasingly difficult to traverse. River crossings saw the wagons having to be emptied, dismantled, carried across them on crudely built rafts, and then put back together on the other side. As the snow fell increasingly heavy, the group's progress became increasingly slow. Eventually, losing faith in Packer's navigational skill set entirely, Nutter and Lusenheiser began scouting the trail ahead of the wagons on horseback, as well as hiring transient Indian guides for days at a time who were headed in the same direction as the group. By January, tensions had risen fairly high. A trip that Packer had suggested would take 20 days was now coming up for three months deep. Constant snow was agitating members and making hunting increasingly difficult, and both had led to a severe lack of rations. During the most difficult periods, the group ate only a small portion of chopped barley per day and seriously debated slaughtering one of the horses. On January the 25th, just as the situation was reaching its bleakest, the group found themselves surrounded by Ute Indians. According to the 1868 treaty, they were not technically supposed to be on the Indian land. Perhaps it was down to the poor state of the group, but fortunately, the Utes surrounding them took pity and they invited them to stay with them until the spring when travel would become much easier. Retiring to the Ute camp, the party sat up on the outskirts of the Utes' home base and dug in in order to wait until spring. They pulled their money together and bought provisions from the Indians, and the group quickly raised their health and strength back to their usual levels. Just as quickly, however, some of the party grew restless. A week after settling outside of the Ute camp, Lusenheiser, Walkers, Burke, and Driver left the group on foot, heading back out into the wilderness towards Cow Camp, a government run livestock camp 80 miles to the east of the Ute camp. The Indians loudly discouraged the idea of setting back out into the harsh conditions. Insisting they wait for the snow to thaw, but the small group's mind was set. Bagging up a week's rations, they set off alone. Packer was also not so keen to sit around, and he decided to follow the group as they left into the snow, but Lusenheiser threatened him with a pistol, telling him in no uncertain terms that if he continued to attempt to tag along with the group, there would be trouble. Packer didn't need to be told twice, and he promptly returned to the rest of the group, but far from settling down, he instead began searching out other members who might make up a second breakaway party. Packer may have been unpopular with the members, but there were seemingly plenty who were not so keen to wait out the winter, and a few days after Lusenheiser's group had left the camp, Packer set out alongside 16-year-old George Noon, 60-something Israel Swan, Frank Miller, Shannon Wilson Bell, and James Humphrey. Once more, the Indians warned them against leaving and told them that if they insisted, then no guide would be able to help them, as none were stupid enough to want to leave into the heavy snow and harsh landscape of deep January. They instead drew a rough map in the snow and wished them luck. McGrew had decided to stay back with the main party, but agreed to follow them out on horseback as far as he could, sticking with Packer's group for two days before the snow became too thick for the horses, forcing him to turn back. As he waved them goodbye, he watched them disappear into the bitterly chilled winds and heavy snowfall, vanishing out of sight. It was the last anyone would see of the group for almost three months, and even then, they would only ever see one member alive. As dawn broke on April the 16th, two and a half months after they'd set out from the Ute camp, Alfred Packer strolled into the Los Pinos Indian Agency. 25 miles south of Cal Camp, Los Pinos was a small hamlet that included a schoolhouse, sawmill, carpenters and blacksmiths. Alonzo Hartman had seen him first, tramping out of the tree line, Winchester rifle slung over his shoulder and a coffee pot swinging in his hand. Since leaving the Ute camp, his hair and beard had grown considerably longer and considerably more ragged, but otherwise he seemed healthy enough for a man climbing down a mountainside in freezing temperatures. At some point in the previous two months, he'd also managed to lose two of his front teeth. Hartman hollered to Packer and invited him into the mess hall to eat breakfast, where he met with the camp's clerks, Stephen Dole and Herman Lloyders, as well as Constable Herman Lauter and Major James P. Downer, the local justice of the peace. Keen to know where he'd come from, they questioned him as they ate, asking him where he'd been, where he was headed and who he was with. Packer remained on the back foot the entire time and gave the men the impression that he was not interested in their questioning. But he gave them a vague story that he'd been heading towards cow camp with a group of men when he'd gone down suffering from frostbite and been left behind with only a few days' rations whilst the rest of the group had gone on ahead without him in order to find supplies and medical help at the camp. That, he said, was the last he'd ever seen of them and he decided to make his own way after he realised that no one would be returning for him. The story seemed believable enough but by sheer coincidence several members of the original party that packer had left behind at the U camp italian tom nutter cooper and preston just so happened to arrive at los pinos later that same day they had waited out the worst of the snow and left the camp just two weeks earlier and turned up in los pinos in much better condition than packer confused as to why packer was alone They asked him where the other five men were who had left the camp alongside him, and Packer repeated the same story to them as he had told the Los Pinos officials that morning. After a short stay at the agency, Packer sold his Winchester rifle to Major Downer for $10 and joined Nutter on a wagon headed for Sigwatch, 45 miles to the northeast, back towards central Colorado. Packer had confided with the party that he had grown tired of Colorado and was hoping to head back home to Pennsylvania. But after just a few days on the road, some began to feel suspicious about his story of his time alone in the mountains. For a start, he was carrying Miller's skinning knife, which many were sure he would not have left behind for someone else to pick up, which was the story that Packer had told them when this was pointed out. Eleven days later, the wagon pulled into Sagra. A small mining village that had blossomed from an insignificant farming community to a thriving meeting hub for miners heading into the San Juan mountains. In recent years he had seen saloons, shops, a restaurant and even a newspaper spring into existence. Here the wagon stopped off and Packer enjoyed his time amongst civilization, gambling in the dens and he took a job as an occasional bartender in order to pay his board which was more often than not on the floor of one of the saloons that he'd been drinking in that day. The wagon also met with the rest of the members of the original party, who had also turned back from the mountains. All except, of course, the five that had left with Packer, who still no one had seen. As the original members grew in number and Packer spent more and more money gambling and drinking, rumors and suspicion quickly began to stir. Packer had told everyone he would always been broke. He had been broke before they had left Salt Lake City originally and had only sold a single rifle as far as they were aware. Yet here he was in Sagwatch, living it up in varying states of drunkenness. A week later, having had his fun, Packer bought a new pair of shoes, a shirt, two pairs of overalls, a tin of tobacco, a horse and a bridle for a grand total of $78. As he was paying the shopkeep for his supplies, one of the $10 notes that he'd tried to pass off was called out as a fake. Packer quickly exchanged it for another note in his wallet, apologising for the trouble. After hearing of this spending spree, General Charles Adams, the man in charge of the Los Pinos Indian Agency who had arrived in Sagwatch with his wife, too began to feel suspicious of Packer. Shortly after his arrival, he'd spent an evening eating dinner with Packer where he'd heard of his tale of mountain survival first-hand. Now, the rumours of his survival were less than heroic and the word on the street was that Packer had survived after robbing and killing the five other members of the party. Whether or not he put any stock in the rumours or simply wanted to give Packer a chance to prove his innocence, Adams met with him and suggested that if he had been able to survive the mountains then perhaps the five other members of the group were also somewhere still alive. Offering to pay Packer as a guide to help them to find the lost men, Adams, his wife, Packer and Otto Mears, the Sagwatch general store owner and one of the founders of the town, headed back towards Los Pinos to begin looking for Packer's lost companions. During the trip, Adams questioned Packer as to where he'd gotten all the money he'd been spending in Sagwatch if he was as broke as he said he was, to which Packer replied that he never had any money only the $10 that he'd received from the sale of his rifle. When Adams asked him about the further $78 that he'd spent in Mears' store earlier that week, Packer said only that this little shopping spree had slipped his mind and insisted that he'd borrowed the money legitimately from a family friend, a blacksmith in Sagwatch named Kincaid. He said he borrowed it as money that he could use in order to pay his way home. Adams sent a messenger to the town with the order to seek out Kincaid in order to confirm the story. The following day, the messenger returned and it was bad news for Packer. Kincaid had confirmed with Adams' messenger that he'd never lent Packer any money at all. Adams called Packer into his office and sat him down and told him that he knew that he was lying about the money, asking if he had anything more to say about the matter. Packer replied that he did not. Well then, I will tell you you have lied to me. I know that Kincaid gave you no money. I will ask you again, where did you get the money? You might as well tell me the truth. I believe the men are dead and you know something about it. If the matter is, as I suspect, you are more to be pitied than blamed. But I wish to get to the whole truth of this thing because I do not care to send out a party into the mountains to search for dead men." Packer, with his head towards the ground, Staring at his feet, replied in a solemn tone. It would not be the first time that people had been obliged to eat each other when they were hungry. He then broke down in tears and gave the first of what would eventually be three confessions as to what had really happened during his time in the mountains. Old man swan died of birth, and was eaten by the other five persons. About ten days out from camp, 4 or 5 days afterwards, Humphrey died and was also eaten. He had about $133. I found the pocketbook and took the money. Some time afterwards, whilst I was carrying wood, the butcher was killed as the other two told me accidentally and he was eaten. Bell shot California with Swan's gun and I killed Bell, shot him, covered up the remains and took a large piece along, then travelled 14 days into the agency. Bell wanted to kill me, struck at me with his rifle, struck a tree, and broke his gun. I, A.G. Packer, do solemnly swear that the above statement is true and nothing but the truth, so help me God. A.G. Packer." Packer told Adams that he had arrived at the agency a day or two after having run out of the meat that he had kept from Bell's remains. As far as Adams was concerned, it was a believable story and told by Packer in a convincing enough manner. If Packer was telling the truth, he had only done what many before him had also been forced to do. The Donner party were perhaps the most famous example when in 1846, a wagon train bound for California wound up snowbound in the Sierra Nevada mountains with members of the party resorting to snacking upon one another in order to survive. Despite the grim stigma that surrounds it, cannibalism itself There's never been a direct crime in the USA, though there are often laws that indirectly punish the acts surrounding obtaining human flesh in the first place. The fact of the matter was, cannibalism for survival was, at times, often depending on the press coverage, viewed with a certain degree of leniency. It was an act of desperate survival rather than cold-blooded murder. It was a grim situation that not many wished to experience, and fewer held a grudge upon those that were forced into partaking when the situation was so dire that it became necessary. These sympathies were reflected by Adams, who, whilst listening to Packer recall the details of his expedition, noted down how he was showing some mental aberration as a consequence of eating human flesh. The twelve members of the original party that Adams had summoned to Los Pinos in order to witness Packer's confession, however, were less than convinced. Adams agreed to release Packer and set him free with a fully paid trip home if he would escort them to the campsite where he had said Bell attacked him and they could prove his story to be true. Two days later, Packer led a group back into the mountains in search of the camp, but within three days he was claiming to be completely lost and had no idea where the camp may be. Constable Herman escorted him back to Los Pinos Agency, mostly for his own safety, as the rest of the original party were quickly losing patience with him, and he was placed in the custody of Sheriff Amos Wall of Sagwatch, who tossed Packer into the old log cabin jail, until the investigation into the group's disappearance could gather more evidence either way. Whilst this was happening, the rest of the expedition continued to look for the bodies of the lost party members. They had found Alfred Packer's camp, complete with bark, shelter, fireplace and toilet area but there was no sign of Bell's remains nor his rifle. They drained the nearby lake but it uncovered nothing. After they returned to Los Pinos empty handed and with no clue where to turn next, the investigation very soon turned cold. This was quite a problem for sagwatch officials who were still holding Packer on the public's money. Truthfully, the town struggled with finances enough without having a long-term prisoner sapping away at what precious tax funds they did have, and so, with no evidence to hold him on and one eye on the books, Otto Mears and John Lawrence colluded to let Packer go free. It was a move which quickly became back to bite them, as just two weeks later, on the 20th of August, the bodies of the five missing were found by Harper's Weekly artist John A. Randolph whilst out on a jaunt through the mountains. The paper was quick to run the story on the find, complete with Randolph's sketch of the scene of the bodies. Mr. John A. Randolph, an artist who was out on a sketching tour, was startled one afternoon by coming suddenly across the remains of five human beings. They were lying in a gloomy, secluded spot, densely shaded by tall trees, near the bank of the Gunnison River. Marks of violence on each body indicated that a most terrible crime had been committed here. The bodies lay within a few feet of each other, in their blankets and clothes. There had been no attempt to conceal the remains. No guns or camping utensils were found with them, nor a trace of any boots or shoes. The feet were heavily bandaged with blankets, which they had torn up for that purpose. Randolph had contacted a local prospector, Hezekiah Musgrave, who contacted officials to report the find. An inquest was held by Coroner W.F. Ryan who confirmed that the bodies had signs of being hit in the head with a hatchet or other blunt object. One of the heads of the bodies had been fully decapitated, whilst another had been badly crushed. Three of the bodies were so badly mutilated it was noted that their own mothers wouldn't have recognised them. Until now, the story had been kept relatively quiet, with only a few small stories being picked up in the local rags in Colorado. After the discovery of the bodies and the following inquest, however, the story was now big news. Headlines were calling it a cannibalistic sensation. A miner butchers his five companions whilst they sleep, feasts upon their flesh. It is dreadful to think of this man camping nearby and going every day for two weeks to cut a horrid meal from the bodies of his dead comrades. What were his thoughts through the silent watches of those long, bleak winter nights, with his dead companions slaughtered by his own hand, lying cold and stiff near him, none but the all-seeing one and himself can never know. The savage cannibal may not know God or reason, but the civilised cannibal has all the knowledge and reasoning powers which should make such horrors doubly horrible. Other stories were quick to jump on Packer's guilt as a murderer. It now appears that Packer murdered these men by chopping their heads with a hatchet, robbed them of money and their other property and told the story of cannibalism to hide the crime. It was okay though. The newspapers were well assured because, as, they, because, as everyone knew, Packer was safely tucked in jail. Except, much to the embarrassment of Mears and Lawrence, the papers were lagging behind on the story and the pair had let Packer free just weeks before. As soon as the inquest was over, a fresh arrest warrant was put out for Packer, with rewards as high as $5,000 offered, which had been collected together by families of the deceased men. With such a high price on his head, a manhunt quickly ensued, with his description circulated throughout the press. He's five feet, eight inches tall, heavy set, and has lost two upper front teeth and the first and fourth fingers on the left hand about 30 years of age. The man can be easily identified by the loss of his fingers, not one in 10,000 being so marked. As before stated, he was last seen near Del Norte, but one person is sure he saw him one night at the Criterion Hall in San Juan and he is believed to have fled into New Mexico and to be hiding in the mountains. Wherever he may be, a man so marked cannot escape when people are once thoroughly informed of his crime and in a few days when this terrible story shall have been read in every part of the civilized world, there will no longer be a hiding place for the criminal. The press, however, were desperately wrong. Despite the hefty reward and the widespread publication of Packer's description, it was all to no avail. Alfred Packer was gone. As time passed, Rumours swirled around the eventual fate of Alfred Packer, Having disappeared off the face of the earth under the nose of such a fervent manhunt, it was assumed that he'd attempted to hole up somewhere in the Ute Reservation, and eventually, he must have fallen foul to an unfriendly group who had cut him down and disposed of his body somewhere out in the wilderness. Outside of local legend, his name had fallen out of the memory of most Americans just as quickly as he had entered. That was until nine years later, in March of 1883, when Jean Cabazon, one of the prospectors from the original expedition, who was now working as a peddler, selling household goods on the 140 mile stretch of road between Cheyenne and Fort Fetterman in Wyoming, ran across a man named Jean Swartz in a roadside bar and hotel that he'd stopped in for the night. Overhearing the man talking loudly in the bar, Cabazon felt sure that he recognized the voice. He introduced himself to him, who clearly not recognizing Cabazon, introduced himself as Schwartz. That evening, he told the Frenchman over a few drinks that he'd been prospecting in nearby Warm Spring Canyon with a father-son partnership. Cabazon left the bar that night, convinced the man was not Schwartz at all, but was in fact the long-lost Alfred Packer, wearing a crudely fitting denture to repair his front two teeth. The next day he went straight to the Deputy Sheriff, Malcolm Campbell, to report his suspicion, who, upon hearing Cabazon's story, contacted Sheriff Louis Miller asking for advice on how to proceed. The reply took a week to arrive, but when it did, the advice given was to arrest the man at once. And it turned out, for a man you might think would want to be keeping a low profile, Schwartz, aka Packer, had been taken in by Deputy Sheriff Campbell two months prior after he'd threatened a waiter with a gun for being too slow to bring him a glass of water. he had only been released after the waiter had decided not to press charges. Deputy Sheriff Campbell found Packer in a cabin 30 miles outside of town where he'd been living for some months. Annoyed with himself for being taken in so easily, he told Campbell, That's the first time in 20 years I didn't have my gun on. If I had, you fellows never could have taken me. But arrested him they had, and he was taken to an old decommissioned military guardhouse in Fort Fetterman and a guard was placed outside his cell until the 14th of March when he was escorted to Cheyenne jail. Speaking to the press, he freely admitted his real name was Alfred Packer, but stated he had no idea what the charge was against him. As one might expect, his arrest had caused no small amount of excitement in the press, and within days Copies of his identification photo, clearly shown his missing teeth and fingers, were circulating in the streets for a dollar apiece. Packer's next stop was Denver, where he was escorted by train. On the journey, he was reunited with General Charles Adams from the Los Pinos Agency. Appearing to relax around the familiar face, Packer told him that he'd been drifting around through Arizona, Nevada, Montana, and finally Wyoming. He also confessed to being scared by the mobs of people who came to catch a glimpse of him during his transports, and he promised Adams he would give him a second, true and complete confession once the General could escort him safely to a Denver prison cell. Arriving at Denver Union Station, Packer and Adams fought through a crowd over a thousand strong, but just as Adams had promised, Packer did eventually arrive in his cell safe and sound. Summoning Deputy Marshal Cantrill to act as a witness, Packer then commenced in giving Adams his second statement. I, Alfred Packer, desire to make true and voluntary statement in regards to the occurrences in southern Colorado during the winter of 1873-1874. to 1874. I wish to make it to General Adams because I have made one once before about the same matter. We had about seven days of food for one man, We travelled two or three days, and it came a storm. We came to a mountain, crossed a gulch, and came onto another mountain, found the snow so deep, had to follow the mountain on the top, and on about the fourth day, we had about a pint of flour left. We followed the mountain until we came to the main range. do not remember how many days we were travelling then, about ten days, living on rosebuds and pine gum, and some of the men were crying and praying. Then we came over the main range. we camped twice on a stream which runs into a big lake, the second time just above the lake. The next morning we crossed the lake and cut holes into the ice to catch fish, there were no fish so we tried to catch snails. The ice was thin so some broke through. We crossed the lake and went into groves of timber, all the men crying and one of them was angry. swan asked me to go up and find out whether I could see someone from the mountain. I took the gun and went up the hill, found a gulch and came onto another mountain, found a big rosebush with buds sticking through the snow, but could see nothing but snow all around. I was a kind of guide for them, but I didn't know the mountains from that side. When I came back to camp after being gone nearly all day, I found the red-headed man, Belle, who acted crazy in the morning, sitting in the fire roasting a piece of meat which he had cut out of the leg of the German butcher. The latter's body was lying in the furthest, off from the fire down the stream. His skull was crushed in with the hatchet. The other three men were lying near the fire. They were cut in the forehead with the hatchet. Some had two, some had three cuts. I came within a rod of the fire, where the man saw me. He got up with his hatchet towards me, and when I shot him sideways through the belly, he fell on his face. The hatchet fell forwards. I grabbed it and hit him in the top of the head. I camped that night at the fire, sat up all night. The next morning, I followed my tracks up the mountain, but I could not make it. The snow was too deep and I came back. I went sideways into a piece of pine timber, set up two sticks, and covered it with pine boughs, and then made a shelter about three feet high. This was my camp until I came out. I went back to the fire, covered the men up, and fetched to the camp the piece of meat that was near the fire. I made a new fire in my camp. "'and cooked the piece of meat and ate it. "'I tried to get away every day, but could not, "'so I lived off the flesh of these men. "'The bigger part of the sixty days, I was out. "'Then the snow began to have a crust, "'and I started out up at the creek, "'to a place where a big slide seemed to come down the mountain of yellowish clay. "'There I started to get up, but got my feet wet, "'and having only a piece of blanket around them, "'I froze my feet under the toes, "'and I camped before I reached the top of the hill making a fire on top of a log and on two logs close together and I camped there. I cooked some of the flesh and carried it with me for food. I carried one blanket. There were $70 amongst the men. I fetched it out with me and one gun. The red-headed man had a $50 bill in his pocket and all the others together had only $20. I had $20 myself. If there was any more money in the outfit, I did not know of it and it remains there. At the last camp, just before I reached the agency, I ate my last pieces of meat. This meat I cooked at the camp before I started out, and put it into a bag and carried the bag with me. I could not eat but a little at a time. When I went out with the party to search for the bodies, we came to the mountains overlooking the stream, but I did not want to take them further. I did not want to go back to the camp myself. If I had stood in that vicinity longer, I would have taken you right to the place, but they advised me to go away. When I was at the Sheriff in Sagwatch, I was passed a key made out of a penknife blade with which I could unlock the iron. I went to Arkansas and worked all summer for John Gill, 18 miles below Pablo. Then I rented Gilbert's Ranch, still further down, put in a crop of corn, sold it to John Gill, and went to Arizona. I, Alpaca, of my own free will and voluntary do swear that the above statement is true the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. When Adams finished taking the statement, he asked him why there were so many discrepancies with the first confession that he had taken nine years before. In response, Packer admitted to having struggled at the time. He would not been himself, he said, and he was not responsible for anything he had said previously concerning the expedition. Packer's murder trial was launched on Thursday, the 5th of April, 1883. With such a lack of evidence, the prosecution decided to only charge him for the murder of Israel Swan, bargaining that the murder of an elderly man would be the most damning in the eyes of the jury. It all got off to a rocky start when Packer's defence lawyer, Aaron Himes, attempted to get the case thrown out on a technicality, as the indictment read, State of Colorado, but in 1874... When the crime was reported to have taken place, Colorado was still only a territory rather than a full-blown state. The indictment was probably amended, but Himes came again, this time pointing out that the statute the prosecution was using to try Packer was instated after the crime, with the statute it was replacing having already been thrown out. The legal problem for the prosecution was the fact that no clause had been included that made the new statute enforceable for older crimes carried out prior to its instatement. It was a loophole, but a rather good one. Judge Melville B. Gerry took a different view, however, and had the objection thrown out along with the following request to adjourn the trial and remove to a different state, suggesting that the press coverage had made travel to and from the court dangerous for Packer and the possibility of a fair trial almost next to impossible. After all the faffing around, it wasn't until Monday the 9th of April that the trial was finally allowed to kick off proper. Even then, the ordeal of swearing in a jury became a frustrating affair. Himes had not been far wrong when he suggested the difficulty in finding a fair jury for the trial. It took 60 candidates to be interviewed before the trial could finally begin at 4pm, with only time to hear witness from Preston Nutter, who made absolutely no bones about Packer being interested in the party's money heavily insinuating to the court that the motive for the murders was clearly financial gain. On the second day of the trial, Adams gave testimony, saying that Packer had been of perfectly sound mind when he had originally met him in Los Pinos Agency, which was despite his own notes that said he had been suffering aberration of mind during his confession. Over the next three days, the witnesses for the prosecution steadily painted a picture of Packer as a thief, obsessed with gambling and drinking, and hell-bent on finding the money to do so by any means. On the third day, Packer himself took the stand, where he gave a rambling, two-hour-long speech, followed by a further four hours of questioning. The jury returned the verdict to the judge on day five of proceedings, who then gave a long-winded speech before reading the sentencing. A jury of 12 honest citizens of the county have sat in judgment on your case, and upon their oaths, they find you guilty of willful and premeditated murder, a murder revolting in all its details. In 1874, you, in company of five companions, passed through this beautiful mountain valley where stands the town of Lake City. At that time, the hand of man had not marred the beauties of nature. The picture was fresh from the hands of the great artist who created it, You and your companions camped at the base of a grand old mountain, in sight of the place you now stand, on the banks of a stream as pure and beautiful as ever was traced by the finger of God upon the bosom of the earth. Your every surrounding was calculated to impress upon your heart and nature the omnipotence of the deity and the helplessness of your own feeble life. In this goodly favoured spot, you conceived your murderous design. You and your victims had a weary march. And when the shadows of the mountain fell upon your little party, and night drew her sable curtain around you, your unsuspecting victims lay on the ground and were soon lost in the sleep of the wary, and when thus, sweetly unconscious of danger from any quarter, and particularly from you, their trusted companion, you cruelly and brutally slew them all. Whether your murderous hand was guided by the misty light of the moon, or the flickering blaze of the campfire, you only can tell. No eyes saw the bloody deed performed. No ears save your own caught the groans of your dying victims. You then and there robbed the living of life, and then robbed the dead of the reward of honest toil, which they had accumulated. At least, so say the jury. To other sickening details of your crime, I will not refer. Silence is kindness. I do not say things to harrow your soul, for I know you have drunk the cup of bitterness to its very dregs, and wherever you have gone, The sting of your conscience and the goadings of remorse have been an avenging nemesis which have followed your every turn in life and painted afresh for your contemplation the picture of the past. I say these things to impress upon your mind the awful solemnity of your situation and the impending doom which you cannot avert. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You, Alfred Packer, sowed the wind you must now reap the whirlwind. The judgment of this court is that you be removed from hence to the jail of Hinsdale County and there confined until the 19th day of May, AD 1883, and that on said 19th day of May 1883 you be taken from thence by the Sheriff of Hinsdale County to a place of execution prepared for this purpose, at some point within the corporate limits of the town of Lake City, in the said county of Hinsdale and between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. of said day, you, then and there, by said sheriff, be hung by the neck until you are dead, 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 and may God have mercy upon soul. Despite the press fervor before the trial, the mood suddenly shifted now justice had been seen to have been carried out. With Packer firmly locked up in jail awaiting his execution, Talk instead turned to desperation, having driven him insane, whilst fury turned to pity. It was also pointed out that whilst the evidence was enough for the jury to have made their conclusions, it was all entirely circumstantial. The wave of good feeling that began to break throughout the editorials, however, was not to last, as shortly after the sentencing, Himes took the decision to appeal based on the original mess-up with the change of legislature, which meant no-one was able to be convicted of murder at any point between the years of 1870 to 1881. Though the judge may have overlooked the loophole in the trial, the Appeals Court found it much more difficult, and Himes won Packer a second trial, quickly turning the positivity in the editorials straight into bitterness. Rather than pity, many were now calling for mob justice, and police were forced to move Packer to Gunnison Jail under the cover of darkness for his own safety. Whilst Packer awaited his new trial date, he was visited by hundreds, if not thousands of visitors keen to see the human hyena as he was now being called in the press. Packer even made a decent trade of crafting small trinkets and selling them to the Oglin tourists. The second trial began on Monday, August 2nd, this time seeing Packer charged with five counts of manslaughter. Once again, his plea was not guilty. And it took another four days for the jury to pass verdict, this time convicting him on all five counts. Packer was given eight years in jail for each victim totaling 40 years. It was the longest prison sentence ever handed out in an American court, but nevertheless the papers were not happy at all, suggesting Packer had gotten away with murder and calling the sentence lenient. Packer was taken to Cannon City Jail where he was given the convict number 1389 and locked up. Due to his epilepsy, he'd managed to dodge manual labour. Instead, he took to work in the prison grounds, taking care of the gardening whilst he continued to craft trinkets to sell to the healthy market of dark tourists who continued to visit the demon the papers had spoken all about. Over the years, Packer made several further appeals as well as petitioning for early release, all of which were denied. Eventually, after it was claimed that his mental condition was worsening due to his long-term suffering of constant epileptic fits, public opinion did slowly begin to soften. The myths of the Old West had grown more and more distant, and the stories became more and more romanticized. Once again, people began to see Packer as a victim of circumstance, a troubled survivor Who had only done what he had had to in order to survive. After all, it was life on the frontier. In 1897, upon request of long-term friend Duane Hatch, Packer wrote a lengthy letter which the men hoped would be enough to persuade prospective signees to put their name to a petition for Packer's parole. Differing from his first two confessions, it was essentially what amounted to a third confession hacker was, of course, playing to an audience, and as such, it toned down some of the more grisly details and painted a narrative of a doomed expedition he had been lucky to survive, but only after suffering a terrible cost. In leaving, we were deficient in supplies for the entire journey, but this matter can hardly be attributed to either myself or anyone else of the party of 21. For the agreement was that the men who owned the teams were to furnish our sustenance. But, unfortunately, our supplies were exhausted by the time that we reached the Green River, at the head of the Colorado. And now, my kind friend let me impress upon you the painful fact that thus early in our journey we were suffering most terrible from the pangs of hunger. For about five days we had been surviving on horse feed, which was chopped barley. Now I returned to my own party, which composed six men, myself included. There being two trials into the agency about one week after Lussenheiser's party left. We took the upper trail for the purpose of reaching the same destination. We were also on foot and carried what provisions we could in blankets. After nine days, our provisions were entirely exhausted. The snow being deep, we were compelled to keep on top of the divide in order to travel at all, and these divides led to the top of the Rocky Mountains. Our matches had all been used and we were carrying our fire in an old coffee pot. Three or four days after our provisions were all consumed, we took our moccasins, which were made of rawhide, and cooked them and of course ate them. Our suffering at this time was most intense, such in fact that the inexperienced cannot imagine. We could not retrace our steps for our trail was entirely drifted over. In places, the snow had been blown away from patches of wild rose bushes, and we were gathering the buds from these bushes stewing them and eating them. In following these divides, we soon gained the tip of the rocky mountains, and the snow being blown away from the top of the mountain, and our feet encased in pieces of blankets, we were enabled to travel along steadily. Now, my friend, you can imagine our condition, on top of the mountains, with nothing to kill for food, and not even any of those rose bushes. Starvation had fastened its deathly talons upon us and was slowly but most tortuously driving us into the state of imbecility. In fact, Bell, the strongest and most able-bodied man of our party, had succumbed to the power of mental derangement, and was causing the party to be very much afraid of him, as well as that which they felt to be the inevitable doom of each mentally. I am at a loss to fully express our feelings at this stage, but we consulted each other, and concluded to come down off the mountain, for we could not tell whether we had passed the agency or not. it was either snowing or blowing constantly. And, as it happened, we descended to the Lake Fork of the Gunnison River. We camped one night just above the lake. In the morning, I ascended the mountain for the next purpose of ascertaining if there were any visible signs of civilization on the opposite side. Snow being very deep, it required the entire day to make this trip and return. As I neared the camp on my return, I was confronted by a terrible sight. As I came near, I saw no one but Bell. I spoke to him, and then, with the look of a terrible maniac, his eyes glaring and burning fearfully, he grabbed a hatchet and started for me, whereupon I raised my Winchester and shot him. The report from the rifle did not arouse the camp, so I hastened to the campfire and found my comrades dead. Can you imagine my situation? My companions dead and I left alone, surrounded by the midnight horrors of starvation, as well as those of utter isolation. My body weak, my mind acted upon it in such an awful manner that the greatest wonder is that I ever returned to a rational condition. In looking about, I saw a piece of flesh on the fire which Bell had cut from Millet's leg. I took this flesh from the fire and lay it to one side, after which I covered the bodies of my dead comrades. I remained here with them during the night. In the morning, I moved about a thousand yards below, where there was a grove of pine trees. I distinctly remember of taking a piece of the flesh. And boiling it in a tin cup. I also know that I became sick and suffered most terribly. My mind at this period failed me, but I am satisfied that I must have eaten some of the flesh. But my mind was a total blank for a considerable period of time. When my mind returned, I found by my tracks that I had been visiting around the adjacent territory, seeking rosebuds, which I apparently found, for I noticed that by force of habit I had been stewing them in my tin cup. The record of time, now becomes a non-entity. I do not know how long I remained here. I did not know how near I was to the close of the year. I could not tell how near spring was, but the weather began to moderate, and I wandered around seeking rosebuds for food, when all of a sudden I was confronted by the Los Pinos Agency. It would be a mild assertion for me to say that I was surprised, and most agreeable it was too. I found out that in my searching for food and civilization. I had travelled forty miles from the Lake Fork of the Gunnison. Am I the villainous wretch which some have asserted me to be? No man can be more heartily sorry for the acts of twenty-four years ago than I. I am more a victim of circumstances than of atrocious designs. No human being living can say that I in cold blood, with evil intent, murdered my companions upon that awful occasion. What could be the object of my taking their lives in a wanton manner? I bear no malice towards living man, even though I may feel that I have been unjustly dealt with. Still, that supremacy which rules over all knows that I forgive as I would wish to be forgiven. In this, the darkest hour of my earthly existence, I feel, as I have long felt, that I would have been far better off had my execution taken place years ago, and I might now be with those companions whose ghosts, I assure you, do not haunt me. For if the soul has existence beyond this mortal life, Each and every one of those unfortunate men knows that I am innocent. As it is, there is some unexplainable power which retains my hand from freeing my soul. Hence all the brightness in the firmament of my earthly future is centred in the hope that I may eventually be given an opportunity of proving to the world that I am less black than has been painted. And to all my kind friends, I can but reiterate that my heart today, as before, abounds with thankful gratitude for your many expressions of goodwill. I should like to be set at liberty under the banner of a pardon, but if that should not be deemed best, I would gladly avail myself to the opportunity that a commute would give of showing, that I came into existence under circumstances similar to that of others, and that I still possess a desire to live and do right. I hope, my friend, were it not for the flame of hope which forever burns within the human heart, life would certainly be beyond endurance. Gratefully yours, Alfred Packer. The story was reprinted in full throughout the press nationwide. Many of the pieces displayed sympathy with Packer, but bizarrely claimed the most humane course of action was to leave him in prison for his own safety. The world outside of the prison walls, they reckoned, would treat him as a freak and an outsider, and he would never be able to shake the stigma of having eaten human flesh. Notably, for the first time in the life of the case, there were headlines that used the words alleged cannibal, and alleged murderer. Nevertheless, the petition failed, and once more, Packer's pardon plea was once more rejected. Over the years, this pattern continued. At times, high-profile reporters became involved, campaigning for his release. But it wasn't until January of 1901, after he had served 18 of his 40 years, that Packer was finally pardoned by Governor Charles S. Thomas, who signed the paperwork as his last official act at the end of his last day in office. Packer released. He has been in prison 17 years on fearful charges. He ate man flesh, but he was starving in the wild mountains, and people say he was justified. A large majority of the people in Colorado are in sympathy with Packer, because they do not believe that he did anything more than what any other human being would have done under the same circumstances. Upon his release, Packer moved to Sheridan in Wyoming, built a shack and kept chickens, living out a quiet life tending to his garden. He passed away six years later on Wednesday the 23rd of April 1907. Branded as the Colorado Cannibal, the press hailed him as an old pioneer. He was buried in Littleton in a pauper's grave and his funeral was paid for by Jefferson County. And that was the end of the Packer saga. At least, for some time. It would be another 82 years before Packer's name would hit the headlines again, long, long after his death. In 1989, 82 years after his death, his life, now a legend, solidified. Packer's story once more came to the fore when a crew of pathologists, archaeologists, geophysicists and forensic anthropologists exhumed the bodies of Packer's victims. The exhumation took place under the command of James Stars, a professor of law at George Washington University, who had visited the site of the massacre, now a tourist spot in the mountains, and had had a revelation that he should be the one to solve the long-standing question behind the truth of Packard's guilt. Stars set about securing permission for the exhumation, and once it was granted, he put together the team to carry out the work. The digging commenced on July 17, 1989, to much press fanfare. Stars was apparently quite the publicist and had employed the press in the hopes of raising the funding for the dig. One of his other, somewhat more unique tactics was to sell t-shirts to the prospective tourists who would visit the area during the dig, emblazoned with the slogan Gimme 5, the Alfred Packer Expedition, July 1989, as well as Have a friend for dinner. The entire affair was carried out amongst great joviality. The local area underwent a brief period of Paca mania, with dolls of the man selling for as much as $60 in town. Stars, a white-bearded man of 58 who describes himself as a "What's he up to now?" man, thinks his project, although a little funky, has great archaeological significance. He sees it as an example of how forensic science can be used in criminal law. He also sees it as a way to learn more about the alleged victim. Mrs. Jarman has a humbler interest in mine. I hope they put the bones back nicely. I don't want them to rumble and roll." All the while, scientists posed for pictures holding the ancient bones. The remains were taken to the University of Arizona, where bullet holes, scrape marks from the D flashing, and crucially, defensive marks on the bones' arms were all found. It was the defensive marks which stars focused on, damning Packer and declaring him guilty as sin. Frontier justice may have been rough and ready, but in the case of Alfred G. Packer, the legendary cannibal of the Rocky Mountains, it was also right. A team of forensic investigators reported this morning that Packer not only ate his five travelling companions during the terrible Colorado winter of 1874, he brutally beat each one to death with a hatchet and then carefully stripped their flesh head to toe. Dr. Walter H. Birkby, an anthropologist at the University of Arizona, said the skulls had been struck by a hatchet as many as 14 times. There was also evidence that two of the victims tried to ward off blows with their arms, which were shattered. Evidence from Packer's trial indicated that one older man was struck in the head while he lay wrapped in a blanket. For stars, it was a case of mystery solved. However, it wasn't quite as straightforward as he liked to make out to the press. Dr. Birkby, later came out himself and said the findings were unable to substantiate Starr's claims. Even more curious was the twist that came five years later, when the case was once again approached, this time by the Museum of Western Colorado curator David Bailey, who had found an old revolver in a museum collection of firearms alleged to have once been owned by legends of the Old West. The gun was claimed to have been found at the site of the massacre and apparently had belonged to Packer himself. Bailey managed to confirm the truth of the claim by analysing clothing samples found by Starr's team five years earlier and matching leg fragments to the bullets that remained in the chamber of the rusted old firearm. The bullet hole found in Bale's pelvis during the exhumation, said Bailey, proved that he had been shot in defence, as did the fact that bullets still remained in the gun itself. Once again, despite the claims of Bailey's, things were not quite matching up. First and foremost that the only gun Packer ever spoke of owning and shooting was a rifle and not a revolver, and several members of the STARS team disputed Bailey's claims about the remains. And so here we are, 148 years on, and we're still no more or less sure of Packer's guilt than we ever were. Was he, as the contemporary reports brazenly called him, a savage murderer intent on robbing his comrades in order to live it up drinking and gambling in the mining towns of Colorado? Or are we to believe Packer himself and the reports that came later once the mood towards the old west had settled that he had been an unfortunate individual caught in a matter of terrible circumstance, eating his fellow expeditionists in order to survive? That he did the eating is indisputable. However, that in and of itself is rather darkly not such a unique story. It's whether or not he was a cold-blooded murderer or a man simply defending himself from a crazed attacker, which distinguishes the case from any other wilderness tale of cannibalism from the American West. And it is that question which we will ponder whenever Packer's story rises from the obscurity of time. Was he the demon, the human hyena or Colorado cannibal? Or simply Alfred Packer, a chicken farmer? with a tortured past. So that was the story of Alfred Packer and it's a tough one and uh, quite an interesting one and I've got quite a bit to talk about about it as well as all the exciting news like I mentioned at the start. So we'll get into all that after these short advert breaks. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible. And the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android, and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books and when you get into a drought you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are the complete Sherlock Holmes which is read by Stephen Fry and they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue and I've really enjoyed all of those basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories, and that's dark histories, on one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories. Or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those, not so much. Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for $1, $3, and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes, and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com. And you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So we'll do the news after this. Let's talk a little bit about Packer first. Let's just get that done and dusted. Interestingly, I'm really fascinated to know what people think on this one. If they think he's guilty or not. Um, Interestingly, I don't think he is. I, after everything I read, I couldn't find anything that made me believe that he was guilty. For me, there's two options that I believe are true. Um, and there's three options all told. So the three options are you believe Packer's story from his last confession, which is really the, the most, the longest and the most sort of detailed. Although chances are he kind of smoothed over some of the gorier details, but still it's the longest confession. So if you believe that, that basically he'd been away from the camp and when he came back, Bell had already killed everyone and then he killed Bell in self defense and then. Yes, he ate the people to survive um so that that's that's kind of one story and I'm, I'm inclined to believe that one. The other story is that there was a lot more murder in the camp going on, but it was sort of meted out in a a, a slightly more i don't know um sort of measured way so like 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 maybe he killed some maybe i mean I, I do find it convenient. With the first story that he was away from camp all day, and as he came back, they're already dead. You know, that's so, you know, that the other question is they they maybe were were sort of like not necessarily drawing straws, but were killing the weakest and first, if you like. Um, and and so at first, you know, all four of them were potentially involved in the murder, and then three of them were involved in the next murder, then two of them in the last murder, and then it was down to those last two. That's like the other where you can say he's a sort of victim of circumstance as opposed to a cold-blooded sort of killer. And then, of course, you've got the third option where you you just suggest that he was lying in all of his confessions and he was just a cold-blooded murderer and he just waited for them to go to sleep, killed them all, and was done with it. I, I just can't believe that, though, because everything he says in his confession to me is true and makes sense. Like, for example, he mentions in his third confession that he ate, They'd already eaten their shoes. So the idea that he's a murderer is that they weren't so desperate, right? But they had eaten their shoes because all of the bodies were found with their feet wrapped in cloth. So they had eaten their shoes. That that I mean, personally, I just believe that lends weight to his confession that that they were in a bad way. Um, you know, I mean, you wouldn't eat your shoes if, if you didn't have to, right? Or, or most people wouldn't. <laughs> Um, and, and you would assume that none of these people was that crazy that they, you know, just to just be randomly eating their shoes. So, so I do believe that that, 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 that sort of brings it in, into his, his side of the story. It does lend weight to his side of the story. Then of course, like you've got some other things that I noticed that, that firstly were that he, d- he didn't really have a criminal record beforehand. Like the people didn't like him because he was an epileptic and, a couple of people didn't really like the fact that he'd been in jail for sleeping with a, um, you know, a working girl or, 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 you know, hiring a prostitute. And 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 that might be true. But, you know, I mean, that's going to be true of like 90 percent of the men in, in his situation at the time. I'm sure hiring a woman for the night was probably not that out of character. I, I, I can't see. I, I mean, I'm not, I, you know, th- this is me going on a hunch i'm not sort of i haven't gone looked at figures for this but i'm fairly confident that that would be true that that would be a high percentage of the men out there like the prospectors and the miners and that would have been paying to sleep with women so you know that's his only criminal record he doesn't have a criminal record for thievery or anything like that before any of this happened so the fact that they suggested he was a thief i don't think is you know Really based on anything other than the fact that they didn't really like him, and and of course he he was walking around asking about money, but at the same time he joined with no money, so maybe he was just kind of excited about the idea that they could potentially be making a good bit of cash here, you know. Plus, you know, oftentimes asking how much money someone's got is just a way of gauging who they are on the social scale, if you like. You know, like, if he'd have asked someone, oh, have you got a lot of money? And they were like, yeah, I've got loads. He would know that, oh, okay, these people are quite high up on the social scale. You know, in a way, it's just a way of working people out when you don't know them. I mean, it's a bit of a crass way of doing it. And I, I don't think people would do it often these days. I mean, but you do see it these days even. And, and and in those days, you can imagine it. You know, like, just a way of working out someone's social standing in, in his situation is find out how much money they've got you know or find out what possessions they've got because that's just going to help you understand you know if they're well off or posh or whatever you know i think it was quite unreasonable of them to just start sort of assuming that he was a thief of course he'd also bought himself onto the expedition by telling them that he could be a guide and he was pretty useless at that so i guess on you know he was a liar and he wasn't helping himself but Again, like was he being a liar, or was he just being an opportunist? Was he just thinking, "Hey, I know my way around here roughly. Let's just see what happens and it you know once I'm on the expedition, at least I'm on it, and that's not a great way of conducting yourself, but I say there's bigger crimes than that, and then it comes down, well, he did rob them in the end, and he lied about the money because he told you know when he was first captured, he was like, "I haven't got any money, I haven't spent any, and he said, "Yeah." well, that's $78 you just spent in the shop. And then he was like, oh yeah, that's $78. The horse I bought, oh yeah, forgot about that. So that was a bit, you know, you perhaps shouldn't have done that. But I'm sort of left with that as well and thinking, well, all those people were dead. He'd already eaten them, but out of desperation. Why would you just leave the money anyway? I don't think you would have to be a thief to go, do you know what? No one's using that money. I'm taking it. He was already in a situation that was so dire that he was having to eat his expedition mates. Whether or not he killed them, we can put that to one side for a second. But he was already starving enough that he was eating human flesh. So one can imagine that in that situation, you would take the money just as a provision. Like you would take it just as a, well, I might need this to get out of this alive. Just as he took the gun. I mean, the gun wasn't his either, I don't think. And he took that. But no one was like, oh, you thief the gun. You know, that's just accepted because that's something that you might need to survive. Well, I would say the money is also equally that. And and not only that, but why would you just leave it anyway? All those people are dead. They're not using that money. He may as well have taken it. So I think, again, like, I don't think that necessarily makes him a thief. It just makes him an opportunist. I think he probably didn't help himself. I think that's a big part of his problems. I think you know he 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 did lie about certain things. I think he's at least lying about you know he at least lied about the money. Um, certainly, that that absolutely wouldn't have helped him in any way, shape, or form. But I just I just think that everything lends itself to the fact that he didn't, or that you know he he wasn't a cold blooded killer that he killed out of necessity rather than any sort of need or want to just kill them for their money. I don't think he killed them for their money, which is what he was essentially jailed for. Even if that wasn't what he was found guilty for and put in prison, that's what everyone assumed he was guilty for. You know, the, the press were absolutely on his case for being like a thief and like a, a cold-blooded killer who just wanted to kill them for their money. So that's kind of what we're left with. And that's that's my opinion. I, I'd I'd love to hear what you think of it. You know, if you think I'm barking up the wrong tree, I know there are certainly some people that, i've spoke to i've sort of mentioned oh i'm doing the story about packer and they they said oh yeah he was definitely guilty so yeah i know i'm going against the grain a little bit here but um yeah it'd be interesting to see what you think so if you would like to contact me you can do so you can email me contact at dark histories the link for that will be in the show notes um and will also be on the website which is darkhistories.com, and you'll be able to find all the ways in which you can contact me in, in like social media um an email and all that through there uh, we're on all social media um twitter instagram facebook all of that you can chuck us a dm if you want or um say you can email me so thanks very much for listening to the story um yeah let's do some news we got some big news so first of all the really exciting big news i guess dark history's books are now available so there are the there's four books available so far each one is a season of dark history so you've got season one season two season three and season four um and they're the scripts of every episode tied up and made readable yeah they're just awesome they've been um the covers were illustrated by jessica Deer, who's a um a listener and um an illustrator and uh, she illustrated all the covers um and it's they're, they're just awesome they're just so cool it's pretty much like my dream come true in all honesty um you know to have books and and it's amazing how much i've read uh, or written rather for dark histories um yeah i think it, when i was preparing the books obviously i had to do word counts and they're like 190,000 words long and stuff it's just bonkers how 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 much i've had to write um but on the other side of things it's amazing because i've managed to write four books by doing them in in, in like, episode, like episodic installments so yeah they're amazing and they're available to buy so you can buy them on amazon um if you just go on amazon um and search dark histories or ben cutmore you'll, you'll find them um or there are there is a link to them on um the website dot com. To be, to be honest if no one ever buys them I, they're just it was just a real sort of dream come true to be able to to be able to make them and put them together so yeah they're, they're super hype I'm, I'm i'm really excited about that so definitely check them out um so even if you don't buy them just check them out because they're totally cool um so the second piece of news is at halloween i'm going to be doing a live stream uh, and last year we asked people for their local legends and we're going to be doing the same again so this will be different from the christmas campfire so what i'm looking for are you to send in your stories of your local kind of urban legends or your local kind of weird creepy stories to do with your local kind of area so for example i'll probably be telling one about um a a, a bunch of cursed trees that are near me um like a um there's some sort of links to witchcraft and stuff up there and stuff like that it's not a personal story to me of of sort of ghosts and stuff that's the sort of thing we want keeping back for christmas campfire that's where you talk about your own personal kind of creepy story this one is say your kind of local legends and, and really what I'm looking for really is just unique urban legends that that are kind of maybe we haven't heard before because everyone's heard the urban legends right that the big ones but the, the the audience the dark histories you know I'm always hearing how global it is and hearing from people from all over the world in all these strange places that I've never heard of And I mean I'm sure they're not strange places but just I've never heard of them because you know they're just the other side of the world and so, really, what I'm looking for is if you've got any local legends, you know, local to you, then let me know. Um, and we'll be reading those stories, which will be happening for Halloween. Uh, so, the deadline for that will be the 15th of October. And if you would like to write in with your, your local legend, send it to uh, social at darkhistories.com, S O C I A L at darkhistories.com email because then I can keep it separate from the regular email um, and it makes it just just organising it a little bit easier and and, and your story won't get lost. So yeah, if you want to write in for that, then go ahead and do so. That'd be great. And the last piece of news is, of course, August's t-shirt winner from the patrons. So if you're a patron, the way this works is if you're a paid up member of patron um, for that month, um, you get entered into a, a raffle. And I'll pull a winner out from any tier. So you can sign up to Patreon for one, three or five dollars. And if you're at any of those tiers, um, you go in for the raffle. So basically, as long as you're a paid up member of Patreon, you'll go into the raffle. And every month I pull them out and you get a, you win a T-shirt. So, yeah, chances are you can get a Dark History T-shirt for a dollar. So we got this month's winner for August. So August winner of the Dark History T-shirt raffle is drumroll. That I don't have, and I'm probably not going to put in. So, just pretend that the drum roll's there. The winner is Rahima Schwenkbeck. So, congratulations, Rahima! Uh, Getting I, I, I actually I'll get in touch with you um, on on Patreon. I'll send you a message, and uh, we'll sort that out. So, yeah, congratulations! Uh, you're the T-shirt winner for August. Whee! and that I believe. Is that? So i mean, a lot to talk about, I guess, because there was the break. But yeah, it's been good to be back. Um, thank you very much for listening, as always. Back on schedule now, so all my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm holidays over, back to work. Uh, so the next episode will be in another couple of weeks. Until then, take care, stay healthy. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Sleep tight.